I'm Leanne Spencer, founder of Body Shop Performance Limited, author, TEDx speaker, and your host. This is the Remove the Guesswork podcast, the show where I interview influential people in the health and fitness industry to bring you the latest ideas on how to optimize your mind, body, and well-being. Welcome to the Remove the Guesswork podcast. I'm your host, Leanne Spencer, and this is part two of last week's interview with Dr. Sharad Paul, based on his book, The Genetics of Health. Dr. Sharad Paul and I talk about food genes. What do our genes tell us about what we should eat? Is there a fat gene? Does such a thing exist? We talk about the effects of lifestyle and longevity, how things like dance and the benefits of meditation can help our gene expression, help us to extend our health span. We talk about the stress genes as well and cover off quite a few of the ideas in this brilliant book. So enjoy the part two of this interview. If, of course, you haven't heard part one yet, please go back to last week, download that episode first, and things will make a lot more sense to you. And finally, if you're interested in getting a free copy of the book, The Genetics of Health, which I strongly recommend reading, then all you need to do is jump onto iTunes, leave us a review specifically relating to this episode, mention the book, and then we'll pick someone at random and send you a free copy of the book a couple of weeks after this episode goes out. So enjoy part two of my interview with Dr. Shahad Paul. Okay, well, let's talk about stress genes because we've already touched on anxiety and you've indicated there that perhaps anxiety has a genetic influence. And in the book, you talk about anxiety as an adaptive response, which I think you've just covered off there. But I just want to talk a bit about, is there an anxiety gene and what is the impact of emotional stress on our genes and on our disease risk as well? Emotional stress is massive. And I think the confusion comes because people attribute... It's like in understanding genes, what we discussed earlier, genes are a blueprint, they're not a destiny. Mm -hmm. And similarly, chronic stress is something which suppresses our immune system. So when it suppresses the immune system, the end result is you respond poorly to tumors, you respond poorly to infections, you respond poorly, uh, so you gain weight, which are the effects if you were on taking a steroid pill, what are all the side effects you would get, you end up getting. So it's interesting, in short bursts, stress is good because a little bit of steroid, you know, you feel great. But if you are constantly under stress, so your body is trying to protect you. So like I said, you're not in that acute fight or flight because you're stuck in the situation. So what happens is your body then starts producing steroid to protect you. But because steroid in short bursts elevate your mood, it makes you feel good, but not when you're doing it all the time because then... Because of that, we know that in every cancer study you look at, you know, a journal paper, scientific studies, which will show the impact of stress on cancer, people who are more stressed will do poorly. I think the misunderstanding comes where people, because there's a, everything has a trigger where you develop a disease, these things don't cause the disease, but they make it worse. Mm. And I think that's where the misunderstanding is because people will say, he just, uh, somebody died and he was under intense stress, then he developed cancer, right? Which is actually a logical understanding if you look at the time frame, but they probably had this little underlying cancerous cells before and it just took off after that. But of course, when they go to their doctor and say that everybody rubbish is saying, no, stress can't cause a tumor. Yeah, that may be true, but it can make it a lot worse. Mm. Because whereas we know that people are positive and this is why being positive, mindful, things like that help you as a tool. Because if you handle stress and you didn't secrete those chemicals, you actually fight off a lot of things much more easily. Yeah. So I always say this to people, I'm very positive and I always try and 
think, you know, there are only two types of them. I have a very Zen attitude towards problems very quickly. You know, there are only two types of problems. Either ones you can control, or ones you can't. Mm. The ones you can control, your job, your friends, whom you hang out with, whatever. If you are not happy with it, change it because you can control it. Mm. Other things you can't control, and those are things totally outside. Maybe you can't move from where you live because whatever. But those things you can't control. So why stress about it? And so the point is you have to get this balance. And, you know, see, I travel a lot, lectures and everything else, and I've been a doctor for 30 years, Touchwood, and I've never lost a working day because of illness, Touchwood. <laughs> wow. And I th- used to think nothing much of it till everybody started pointing it out that, hey, you know, have you had yourself tested? And part of that is how this book came about as well. But it was really, I was just looking at my subconsciously doing something right, which because of the things, the things you don't dwell on, you find people dwell on a lot. So mm. the things you can't change are the ones which consume people. Yeah, You can't because you have to, you are never going to change some people. So if you're going to let it stress you, you're going to be stressed for the rest of your life. Yeah. And what it means is that it's going to affect your health. So let's talk about some of the things that you mentioned in the book that we can do to positively change our health. You talk about dancing and meditation yeah. were two that really stood out for me. I can't dance, but I do meditate. Well, everybody can dance. It's whether you can dance well. Well, okay. So I can move my body. That's a dance. It just may not be aesthetic to other people. Yeah. It may not be aesthetic to others, but it's still dance. Yeah, I guess it is. Yeah. So I can. Okay, I can, but I don't. But you mentioned dancing very specifically, and you alluded to some yeah. studies in the book. Just tell us a little bit about that. And this was the really the, in fact, in writing this book, a lot of the other things I sort of knew how to fast. Like I, we knew stress makes things worse. We know, but this was a total surprise to me because when I divided the book into chapters on exercise and various things, I actually thought I'd be writing more about yoga and Tai Chi and things like that because, you know, we know they're generally good and they're trendy now and everything. And I thought I'm going to have to research a lot more about yoga and stuff like that when I was looking at dementia and stuff. What I found most astounding is the most evidence for improving cognitive function or reducing the effects, things like dementia in dance, especially tango, was number one, including for Parkinson's disease improving symptoms, what they call the timed up and go, getting up and going, because they find it very difficult in Parkinson's, was tango. And the reason for that is, if you went back to what we said earlier about the brain being all about movement, what is movement? So movement has three forms. So one is locomotion, which you're just you know moving. Mm-hmm. And the second part is orienting, which is your balancing. And the third wing is grasping, which is a very primitive reflex. So child grasps the mother, mother grasps the child. And that's the primitive. So those three are the fundamentals of brain movement. So one is just locomotion. So if you look at dancing, in most cases, the dancers need to involve all three. Mm -hmm. And that's why tango is so good, because you're grasping onto a partner, you're moving your legs. So it's actually a walk rather than a true dance. Yeah. And also it's locomotion for locomotion's sake. You're not going like a waltz in one, two, three, one, two, three, where your brain is only thinking of the steps. You're just going with your flow with the partner. Mm. So if you can't dance, then you see things like, for example, cycling, for example, now, or running, even for some of cycling, because you need to balance and you need to grasp onto your handlebars and you need to move. So, you know, even exercises like cycling can be a substitute, but, what I found interesting is, and I was in Dublin at the 
Writers Festival in Dorky. And I said to them, I finally found a reason why we can forgive you guys for River Dance. You know, that for, <laughs> I was telling Michael them, Flatley, I, okay, yeah. never, I said, I'd probably never forgive Flatley, but I can forgive you guys because <laughs> it's actually good dementia. Here's the good news. <laughs> because you're actually, because you're jumping up and down, just using your legs, right? You need to hold on to the person next to you or you'll fall off. Mm. So that's got a grasping element and it's leg movement. And it's a bit of locomotion. So actually Celtic dancing as well reduces risk of dementia. Yeah. Okay. So anything that combines those three movements? Those three. So that's the fundamentals of it. So you look out for any form of exercise. So as many forms we do may only have two. And that's why, so if you look at yoga, for example, it's actually very good for stress relief. So when we're talking about managing stress, Earlier, yoga is very good for it, but it doesn't have this element of locomotion to mm. the same because it's not vigorous endurance with it. Because that endurance movement, locomotion is like we said, important for the brain. Mm. And same with Tai Chi is very good for balance because it is like a dance, but it doesn't yeah. have, and you're not propelling yourself. And these things can help. These types of movements yes. can help to change gene expression specifically around anxiety. I mean, these are the best for brain function. So the yeah. biggest evidence for this triple for anxiety is slightly different because you actually, even yoga does help stress levels and does help anxiety. But if you're talking brain function as in cognitive function, how alert your brain is or reducing the risk of dementia or improving Parkinson, then you want an exercise which encompasses all the three forms which are important for the brain. And that's why we were saying tango or Celtic dance or... Yeah things like that, cycling. Yeah, yeah. And when we talk about the brain, we're really talking about chemicals, aren't we? So serotonin, dopamine, cortisol, things that contribute to anxiety. If you're looking to gene expression around anxiety, it would be what you eat, how you're moving, but also trying to change some of those chemicals. I mean, serotonin is one I'm thinking of specifically as well. What are some other ways that we could alter the serotonin levels in the body? Or do you buy into the fact that depression, for example, and anxiety are linked with low serotonin levels? Yes, but not the drug therapy for it. So, so what I mean mm-hmm. is there is science behind, yes, we know that being in sunshine gives us more serotonin, so we feel better and mood elevation. Mm-hmm. So therefore, we know that certain foods may have more serotonin and those foods, you know, like a lot of, and then also we, I think we were briefly discussing in an email, the umami Which taste. Which I was going to come to. Yeah. Well, let's come to it now. So basically, we also know that what we taste has an effect on our anxiety levels. So let's just look for an example of how we evolved our taste buds. So if we looked at bitter taste, it's very simple because bitterness is most of the poisons are bitter. So if an animal needs to taste bitterness to avoid getting poisoned, so if they bite something and it's bitter, they spit it out. And typically bitter chemicals are poisonous for us. Right. So that's how it evolved because an animal needed to know is this edible or not. And so when it's bitter, it's non-edible it also transpires that it's actually not good for you, mm. right? So then you, the sweet was different because sweetness gives you a sh- quick sugar burst of energy. So an animal, when it needed his energy and it bit something and it's sweet, and they're okay, then I'm going to get a bit sugar fixed, right? Which is so, because they didn't have candy bars and things. And we've got the other extreme now of, you know, everything, because that's why we're dopaminergic. We want a quick fix, but we want it all the time. So yeah. we can't stop with just one quick fix. We want like 10 in our cupboard. So the third interesting thing was, 
Sate, so each one actually, it is so crazy, it says each one indicates something else. So people who taste sour tastes more than others. So you like the sour foods. You are actually more adventurous and a more risk taker. The risk taking people are more sour food, you know, sour. How interesting. Yeah. So this is something we haven't figured it out fully as to why that is. But the research is very clear. There's not even published in Nature on it. And right. everybody knows it. But we haven't figured out the evolutionary connection yet. And I haven't had time really, only read it recently, I haven't had enough time to look into it. Mm. So that takes care of the sour. And then you have, of course, umami, which is, for a while, people didn't even know that was a taste. But everybody felt that's something which you like, you know, mushrooms or soybeans or the kelp. I mean, it basically, so everything also marmite, you know, certain things which some people have a taste for and others don't have That a has taste. umami in it. That's right. Those foods, yeah, okay. So actually, so what happened is in Japan, where the story started was, uh, which I mentioned the book, was a Japanese scientist was fascinated by it because they have a lot of this kelp soup, which they call kombu, which is they put kelp seaweed and soup, like a miso, a miso kind of a taste, right? So, you know, the miso also has a little yeah. taste like a marmite. Kind. And so he was like, what is this taste? So he actually wanted to chemically extract that taste because he also knew like what we're saying, that we know what sweet means, we know what bitter means, but what does this mean? And bizarrely, he found that that is linked to the glutamates in your system. Mm-hmm. So actually, unfortunately... Once the industry knew that, wow, you know, we can make monosodium glutamate and put it in our foods and people would want more of it because it relieves their anxiety. That's why we have MSG in foods. And that's why people, those foods are what wow. we typically call moreish foods because yeah. you can't stop eating because it's got the MSG added. So you're like, give me more. I want my mummy. Yeah. Because what actually happens is this is an anxiety thing. So what we now know is breast milk, for example, of all the animal milks, human breast milk, has one of the highest umami contents. Right. And you can see right. why evolutionary that would be the case. That's right. And that's why with all this thing that breastfed babies do better than other babies and yeah. with this breastfed. So because you can see they're less anxious. They're the so we know this umami is such a big part of it. So it actually means to this. So conversely, people who have heightened awareness or people who suddenly can't handle a certain bit of umami because of us. So like, I know some people, some friends who work with me and I normally have soy milk because I'm a bit lactose intolerant, but they can't drink. So they're like, oh, it just smells like anything. And I was like, there's no real smell in it. I can't smell it. So what's interesting is so uh, being a scientist, you immediately research it. What's different? So interestingly, these people are, whom I know are quite anxious. So what's interesting is you are heightened, that kind of sensitivity indicates mm. your anxiety response. And so also the paradox of it is you may be more likely to therefore get hooked on this kind of monosodium glutamate-rich foods, which typically addict you because they're really processed. But they were, it was actually a clever science in a way, you know, the food technologist, because once he extracted it, industry thought, hang on, if that's what makes you call out for your mummy and think of oh, I feel now warm and cuddly and protected. Let's just put it in everything. So, you know, you yeah. open chips, you're getting, I don't know, Mars bar, whatever. They may have MSG and you buy it and you think, oh, I want another one. I can't stop, you know, because I feel so good and you feel so good. But the moment you stop it, 
you go down because you're again craving <laughs> your mother, which is this yeah. case. It's fascinating. So we can eat ourselves out of anxiety, but it isn't always a good thing. That's right. Let's ask you about something. That's why it's comfort eating. So, but people do know it. So if you think someone suddenly put on a lot of weight and they say, I was depressed. And I... Yeah, comfort eating. Comfort eating, that's yeah. it. And is comfort eating associated with, because it's believed, isn't it, there's between 50 and 90% of our serotonin resides in the gut. Is that another link to comfort eating? So when we eat foods, it releases serotonin in the gut and makes us feel good. Or is that, that's my little theory and I am not a medically <laughs> trained person. Is there anything in that? It is true. The only thing with serotonin is we know that, you know, having higher serotonin levels make you feel better in certain seasonal elements, like we said, like summertime and things like that. Mm. But the interesting thing is it's usually a secondary effect. So like we were talking about the zoomami, so you start eating those foods and those foods also more improve your serotonin and then you feel better. But the problem where the science is not so 100% is when it comes to medications. So the issue there is if you look at antidepressants and things like that, there are many different types of them and all of them don't do the same kind of things to a serotonin. Mm. Yet they're all sold as, you're right, that see, this is where we must differentiate what's necessarily a mood elevator is not necessarily the same for anxiety as it is for depression. Right. So they're two separate things. Yep. So depression is a low mood. Anxiety is your scary cat gene, really, right? So you're just anxious. Everything's making you anxious because you're just a scary cat, right? And depression, you're a sad cat, right? So they're two mm -hmm. different things. Mm -hmm. So serotonin is well known that is linked with your low mood. So obviously you can get more depressed in winter and things like that. Your anxiety is much more alleviated by your umami-rich foods, but because of the fact that you're eating stuff which make you feel more comforted and things secondarily, like you're saying, it does impact your serotonin levels. Right. Okay. But what, I'm, what I mean is the science isn't there, even though antidepressants are then prescribed for anxiety. That was just a stretch made by the pharmaceutical companies. I don't think yeah. the science, the chemical science is actually that absolute. Yeah. The efficacy of these drugs is not that good. That's what I'm saying. It just because once you use it for one, you say, let me try to use it on the other one, and then everybody gets on them. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is the science isn't precise. So I, I remember, I think I mentioned in the book, uh, somebody I know works for a drug company, and I pointed this out. She was like, I trust you to bring this up. And she says, you know, truth be told, in the pharmacy, we haven't been really researching this in the industry for 20 to 30 years because we ourselves know there's not that much science in it, but mm. you doctors keep prescribing, so we'll keep making them. So I think people know there is not the same science between, you can't extrapolate directly depression, anxiety, they're two separate. Yeah. Okay, cool. We've just got a few minutes left. So I'd just like to touch on the fat genes. The FTO is a quite popular one, nicknamed the fat gene, and your concept of fat guts and skinny brains, which we did kind of touch on at the start of the conversation. So let's, let's just finish on that. Yeah. So basically, it is unfortunately true in the sense that the bigger your gut is, the skinnier your brain becomes. So if you're putting on two inches of gut every year, your brain's losing a little bit of cognitive function every year. Wow. And the reason for that is, again, the same sort of thing, because it's a combination of when you're really overweight, you end up moving less and then your brain works. Less. So it's like a vicious cycle. Mm -hmm. But also, 
it's partly that's one part of it but the other part is actually a metabolism and it's a fight because if you have a big gut you put more things into the pot and those things need more metabolic energy to digest it so at the moment we know that the brain is you know a fraction of a body weight but it consumes you know, 25% of our power but if your gut is so big and you put all this stuff inside it which needs to be digested so you're actually tapping into another energy source mm-hmm. so the brain has to divert it say oh no there's you know yeah more power needed there so my batteries are running low so you start feeding the other side at the expense of your brain because the body doesn't have a preferential thing to state away think actually the brain should be the first one doesn't matter let the gut atrophy and die it's not like that it's just mm. going to you know divert so it's a pure metabolic thing mm. which becomes your biggest more functioning thing ends up winning right so if gut wins so really the fatter you're becoming the truth is if you measured your cognitive function you measured your memory loss this was done in studies done even in executives is your cognitive function goes the more business lunches the fatter your stomach has become you start forgetting things more you are a ride on more stuff your cognitive function when you're old you're more likely to get demented and same things like you know drinking too much alcohol because obviously alcohol is full of calories you know if you drink a lot of alcohol chances are you're going to get to, unless you are at the other extreme you already past the point of no return when you lose weight just because you're ill mm. but otherwise you tend to gain weight the more you drink and so it's a same kind of cycle yeah and are there genes that can make it more difficult for people to lose weight or conversely make it more likely that they'll retain or convert calories into subcutaneous fat do those genes exist yeah absolutely so i've developed a 21 gene test which is at the back of the book you mentioned or if mm-hmm. you just went to my website you'll see we'll link to and, that yeah yeah and anybody can order it and anywhere in the world and what you find is that we do test for the fto gene and things like that so yes so what it means is certain people what it means is these people have to modify the diets where they take in less saturated fats mm-hmm. so we'll normally say to them what percentage roughly because if these people eat more saturated fat it tends to not get broken down as easily as it would for somebody else so they're more likely to get fat now here's what's interesting is there is also a subgroup of people and this group of people have a different variant which is the one implicated in metabolizing of protein so these are the people for whom going on a high protein diet will make them lose weight so when you see the diets they say keto and whatever atkins or whatever and some people say this great it worked for me it is probably true for a subset of the population but not for everyone else mm. for others it may not be good at all So often when I'm doing the test I find this protein gene and actually write to them saying oh you know you're one of these 10% of people who would actually lose weight dramatically on a high protein diet if you cut carbs but it doesn't work for everybody mm. so and that's why knowing these things is very useful because you know I've got some actors and things who done the test and you can tell them very easily you know for a movie role you could really yeah. lose weight very quickly but it won't work for all so yes absolutely there are genetic variations and some people have a higher density to gain weight if they eat the wrong foods but what it means is like in everything you do have control over it and that's why i think coming back to where we started this talk that's why personalizing this healthcare and your lifestyle is so important 
Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's the ethos of my, my personal philosophy and my business philosophies to remove all the guesswork around your health by testing. So the DNA right. test is, is almost your blueprint for good health, isn't it? And That's right. I know that there are other tests that can give you predisposition for serious disease, your efficacy for certain medicines. But right. fundamentally, you know, how should I be eating uh, according to my genetic makeup so that I've got more energy? I don't put weight on as easily or I don't put on at all. My body can find its set point. I make sure I'm consuming the right amount of caffeine and the right amount of macro and micronutrients. So I agree with you. I think that it will come a time the NHS will adopt this for cost reasons because it's cheaper to try and prevent than to cure. That's right. And that's the only reason I don't test for illness. So I don't test for any predisposition to illness Mm. because stress, like we said, is a massive thing. If you knew that you were going to get Alzheimer's or whatever, and you knew you were going to get it, your life gets screwed up. And because of that, it affects your health. So in my view, you know, life is meant to be lived, enjoyed, be happy, positive. So I don't test. And also there are no insurance implications, you know, so you can do, Mm. uh, yes, I do. We test for everything. We discuss fat and metabolism. It's fundamentally boils down to eating and exercising for your gene type. And that's what I focus on. Mm. And with it, you'll have tips like coffee, how much can you have? And, you know, even real day-to-day things, you know, what's good for you, what's not good for you. Because the bizarre thing is for 50% of the population, coffee is actually very good for you because it's a drug and it has positive effects. But if you're a slow metabolizer, it can actually cause more irregular heartbeats, things like that. Mm. And you may end up on medication when you didn't need to end up on. So, yeah. 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 I think the message is clear that personalization is key don't worry about what's worked for your neighbor your friend and so on but test it doesn't cost a lot of money to do these tests either it's a good investment your genes don't change it's not a once a year job it's a one-off that's right okay brilliant dr paul thank you so much for your time and your insights and your wisdom your website is dr sharadpaul.com i believe Doctor, right. so dr sharad s-h-a-r-a-d paul.com is right. there any preferred social media that people can follow you on if you just put the same dr sharad paul then i'm on you know facebook and i think probably facebook is where i normally put little posts or articles and things like that but they'll find me on all of them on the same address be it instagram or twitter but i must say facebook being the platform where i put more articles up just because of the format allows you to yeah. Post them. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Okay. We'll link to your Facebook page. We'll link to the website, which is where people can find your tests. They can find your book, which is The Genetics of Health. Brilliant book. There is so much in that. I've actually, I don't know if you can see how many pages I've overturned. Yeah, very and good. And then I prepared for this podcast and thought, well, I've only got them for 60 minutes. So uh, <laughs> we're not <laughs> going to get through all of that. But Dr. Paul, That's thank fun. you very much for your time. No problem. Pleasure. Take care. Interested in finding out what your health IQ is? Jump on our website, bodyshopperformance.com and click on take the test and it'll take you through to a very short two to three minute health IQ test. At the end of that, you'll get a scorecard based on your results and a free 39 page report built all around our six signals, which are sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion and fitness. So jump on the website, bodyshopperformance.com and take our test. Finally, thanks for listening to this show. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard and it's added value to you, share the episode with someone you think could benefit from it. And don't forget to leave a rating, a review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.